Welcome to National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast. I'm David Moody, Victorian NDS State Manager, and we're here today to discuss the changing landscape of quality and safeguard arrangements under the new NDIS Commission, which commences operation in Victoria on 1 July 2019. I'm joined by our studio guests, Fiona Still, our NDIS Sector Transition Manager at NDS, and also Dave Ralph, Victorian Quality and Safeguards Manager at NDS. G'day Fiona and Dave. Hi David. Hi David. Good to have you here today. Okay, well as we know, the NDIS represents a fundamental change to how services for people with disability are funded and delivered across Australia. People with disability now have choice and control about the supports they are provided. Once the NDIS is fully established, the number of people with disability receiving government-funded support is expected to increase to 460,000. To enable this to occur, the workforce will need to double. We're also seeing a range of new providers entering the market at this time. The NDIS has the potential to produce major benefits for people with disability, their families and the broader community. But, like any scheme of this magnitude, it also holds some potential risks. It's essential that the right systems and protections are in place to oversee NDIS services and supports. So let's find out a bit more about quality and safeguarding under the NDIS. Dave, I might turn to you first, and thanks very much for being with us here today. Why is the introduction of the National Quality and Safeguarding Framework important for the Australian disability sector? So there's currently inconsistencies between the quality and safeguarding systems in place for each of the state and territory and Commonwealth-funded disability services. The NDIS Quality and Safeguarding Framework provides a nationally consistent approach to quality and safeguarding. It ensures that NDIS participants have the same protections no matter where they live in Australia. The framework ensures that capability is built in this new market-based system, that the rights of people with disability are upheld and that the benefits of the NDIS are realised. The national system will enable trends and emerging issues to be identified and addressed as well. So just to be clear, in the past we've had about eight up to eight different quality and safeguarding systems around Australia. That's right. All of them operating to different standards, variable standards, if you will. And one of the virtues, one of the great virtues of the National Quality and Safeguarding Framework is that it's one consistent approach across Australia. That's correct. Okay, great stuff. All right. And uh, Fiona, if I could turn to you now, are all states and territories launching on 1 July 2019, like Victoria? No, David, just like how there's been a transition to the NDIS scheme for participants, there's been a transition into um, jurisdiction of the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission. New South Wales and South Australia have been under the commission since 1st of July last year, and Victoria will be joined by Queensland, Tasmania, the ACT and Northern Territory on the 1st of July this year, and Western Australia will not roll in until July the following year. Existing state regulations, policies and procedures will continue to apply until then. Okay. So, Dave, if I could turn to you back to you now, what does it mean for people with disability who use services to have this national quality and safeguarding framework in place? Well, fundamentally, the framework's designed to uphold and respect the human rights of people with disability. So it streamlines requirements so that the system's easier to use for people to navigate It empowers and supports people with disability to make informed choices about providers and to raise issues or make complaints. And a nationally consistent code of conduct will make it easier for people with disability to understand what they can expect from workers, but also from their service providers. When you talk about the framework empowering and supporting people with disability to make informed choices about providers, what will that look like in practice? 
I think the answer is difficult because the framework in itself is it's people's response to the framework with mm. that will actually ensure quality and safeguards. And mm. I suppose that's a theme that we run with at NDS in terms of you can tick the box and have those hurdle requirements of a quality and safeguarding system, but the importance will be the integrity and the and the ethics in which those rules and regulations are in, enacted in, in an organisation. Mm. So it's fair to say, and it may not be, but I'm thinking from what you're saying, it's fair to say that there's still some cl- further clarity required around the framework and how, if it's purporting to support people with disability to identify quality, how it will actually do that. And it's in the early stages of the National Quality and Safeguarding Commission. It's only been nearly a year in operation in South Australia and New South Wales, but that is seen as one of the educative framework responsibilities, if you like, of the Commission to look at what those trends are to actually help drive good behaviour as well. And certainly from the uh, perspective of National Disability Services, we've got an increasing focus on um, seeking to understand what quality means when we talk. Quality is a very easy term to throw around perhaps harder to define. So certainly that's a conversation we're keen to be part of in 2019 and beyond. And thinking about what quality means for the people we support. So, you know, quality is about those day-to-day interactions, is about what people perceive from their service providers about those day-to-day supports that they receive. And we need to understand that when we're talking about quality and safeguarding, we need to think about what quality and safeguarding means for the people we support. Amen. Okay. So Dave, We've talked a little bit in passing about this this entity called the Commission, but what is it? What is the NDIS Commission? So it's a new independent agency. As Fiona said, it's been established within the last 12 months, and it's been established to improve the quality and safeguarding of NDIS supports and services for participants. So it brings together various quality and safeguard functions under a single agency for the first time for all NDIS participants. And in terms of those functions, what will the Commission specifically be responsible for, Dave? So they'll be responsible for registration of NDIS providers, oversight of the NDIS practice standards and an NDIS code of conduct. They'll respond to concerns and complaints and reportable incidents, and that includes around abuse and neglect of an NDIS participant. There'll be national oversight of behaviour support, including the use of restrictive practices with an aim of reducing and eliminating those practices. There'll be a nationally consistent NDIS worker screening process. There'll be national oversight of the NDIS market And the NDIS Commission will also facilitate information sharing between the NDIA, state and territory governments and other Commonwealth regulatory bodies. So I don't think it's overstating it to say, Dave and Fiona, that um, the establishment of the Commission and its jurisdiction in Victoria, for example, and other states and territories represents a pretty exciting and potentially innovative time for the sector in terms of embedding good practice where quality and safeguarding is concerned. Yes, certainly. And a nationally consistent approach is very welcomed. And in that context, then, I suppose the other question that we might ask ourselves, in fact, I'm going to ask it now, is what is the role of the other agency whose name we often speak of being the National Disability Insurance Agency? Fiona, I wonder if you might address yourself to that. Well, the two agencies, the NDI Quality and Safeguards Commission and the National Disability Insurance Agency, are the two statutory agencies that are responsible for bringing the National Disability Insurance Scheme um, to fruition. So they're the National Disability Insurance Agency will deliver the NDIS. They're the people who will have um, responsibility for supporting providers, for the development of individual plans for participants in the scheme, coordinating service bookings, payments, access to providers. The NDIA will remain responsible for auditing provider payment requests under the Payment and Assurance Program. They will handle complaints about the NDIA themselves and deal with issues around participants' plans. 
the agency will also have the ability to investigate allegations of fraud, although the commission will be the regulators who will oversight things such as sharp practice. So Fiona, in regards to the difference between fraud on the one hand and sharp practice on the other, how do we define these things? It is, they are different, but it is quite a nuanced response in terms of sharp practice being worker or provider behaviour that's not illegal or it's not prohibited, but it borders on being unethical. And one of the things the Commission will have oversight is in terms of the Code of Conduct is ensuring that services are delivered to participants that are in their best interest and that the participant can have confidence in the integrity of those services. So the things that have been given or talked about that might be examples of sharp practice are things like denying supports to a participant unless they agree to buy all of their supports from that one provider or giving sales commissions or incentives to workers. So whilst not illegal, are not within the code of conduct edicts of the scheme. Whereas fraud is things where, that are actually illegal, where there has been a dishonest action uh, that has caused that provider to obtain a benefit or there has been deception. And the NDIA, under their Commonwealth Fraud Control Framework, are responsible for ensuring that fraudulent practices are investigated uh, and enforced. So that might be through NDIA provisions themselves, or it may be referring on to other regulators. And as we've spoken about earlier, the NDIA and the Commission will have a relationship. So whilst the Commission is responsible for registering providers, the NDIA would be providing feedback to the Commission if they uncovered fraudulent behaviour. So they work in a particularly complementary kind of fashion where it comes to sharp practices and fraud. Absolutely. And I suppose the other distinction that is really important to make is that the investigations of the agency around fraud pertain particularly to obligations around registered providers, whereas the NDIS Code of Conduct that looks at those ethical responsibilities of a provider pertain to both registered and unregistered providers. I think the things that as the market evolves that we'll see tensions around sharp practice might be around things that are would be seen as good marketing practice and how that might sit within uh, ethical boundaries of providing uh, services and marketing to people with disability who have been identified under Australian consumer law as needing to um, have additional protections that protect their human rights. So that's the kind of things that the Commission will look in in terms of those sharp practice. They're not illegal, but are they unethical and are they inconsistent with that extra duty of care that's owed to people with disability? And certainly uh, National Disability Services nationally and locally will be looking to support providers to understand those points of difference and how to navigate what may in the first instance be regarded as um, potential complexities in ensuring that you're doing what you should be doing. One for both of you now in terms of um, what does 1 July mean for Victorian providers and what's changing? on that date? We might take this between the two of us, Dave. I'll start off. Uh, Provider registration. Uh, At the moment in Victoria, providers have needed to be registered through the NDIA. The NDIA, once the commission is fully rolled in, will not be responsible for registering providers. So on the 1st of July, registered providers under the scheme won't need to do anything. Their registration will automatically transfer from the National Disability Insurance Agency over to the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission. And if I might jump in there and ask Fiona, and how will providers know that that has happened? 
going on what happened last year, the NDIA will inform um, providers that there will be a uh, shutdown of the portal, uh, usually over a weekend, that automatic registration will happen and then there will be ability to log on to the NDIS Commission's portal and providers will be able to see their registration details there. Okay. I apologise for interrupting. Please continue. At the moment, we are still getting um, more details and more nuances of what will happen other than that automatic registration. The Commission will then be in in contact um, with providers to look at um, what other things they might need to do to complete auditing and review against NDIS practice standards. But those things and how those transition work uh, works, uh, we're still waiting for more clarity from both the state government and the NDIS Commission. So we know, for example, Fiona, that a certificate of registration will be issued to providers, which will have an expiry date on it. Will that be in hard copy or soft copy form? Will it be sent to them by email? Or is that, these are, these are open questions still by the looks of things? They are things that are still to be um, outlined. Okay. And- it's good to know what we don't know, so we can actually find out the answers. That's great. Um, Dave. Standards of quality and safety. What can you tell us about that from 1 July? Yeah, so there'll be, there'll be changes there as well, David. So from the 1st of July, providers will need to comply with the NDIS practice standards as opposed to the Victorian Human Service Standards. So based on a provider's registration groups, the NDIS Commission will tell NDIS providers which type of audit they'll need to complete as part of the renewal application process. So that could either be certification or verification. So certification is for higher risk, more complex supports and services, And verification is for individual sole traders and partnerships delivering lower risk or less complex services and supports. There's 36 defined NDIA registration groups, and of these, 23 are identified as low risk and 13 are identified as higher risk. So with verification, it involves an off-site audit, which is conducted by an external certifying body, and it'll be based on information that a provider has completed in a self-assessment against the verification standards module, and they'll do that via the commission portal. Certification is a bit more complex. It's a two-stage process. Stage one is a self-assessment against the standards a provider is required to meet. And then stage two is an on-site certification audit, which involves a site visit and interviews with staff and the people who use the provider's services. And the scope of this visit and interviews will will be determined by the scope of the registration and what registration groups a service provider is registered for. So that expiry date that we talked about before is applied to the registration and will take into account the complexity of the supports and services that the service provider is currently registered for. It'll also look at the date of the last audit against the human services standards and those audit findings, and it'll look at information about service providers from the Victorian government and other things that will determine that will be determined by the NDIS Commission. And in the first instance, Dave, if I might ask, which body is responsible for making the determination as to whether or not a particular type of support is to be interpreted as requiring verification or certification? So that'll be determined by the NDIS Commission. Definitely the Commission. Based on what a provider is registered for under the NDIA. Okay. And Fiona, this brings us, I think, to the, um, the ongoing issue of the Code of Conduct and its application. What can you tell us about that? The NDIS Code of Conduct is a code of conduct that both registered and unregistered providers have to comply with. And it's aimed at promoting the rights of people with disability. It aims to ensure prevention of all forms of abuse, violence, exploitation and neglect. It imposes that providers act with integrity, strong values, honesty and transparency in all their dealings with people with disability 
and that the supports they provided are provided in a safe, ethical way with care and skill. The Code of Conduct from the NDIS Commission is in line with similar codes of conduct from other bodies, such as DHHS had a new mandatory code of conduct that it introduced last year for disability workers. Many professional bodies, such as allied health professionals, will also have a code of conduct. The Child Safe Standards also have a code of conduct for work with children. These code of conducts all have a same theme, that to act with integrity, with skill, to do things in line with your capability. The NDIS Commission's Code of Conduct is also supported by a mandatory worker orientation program. So whilst the scheme has been in operation in New South Wales and South Australia since July last year, that mandatory worker orientation um, program is yet to be rolled out. We are hopeful that by 1st of July we will see that being rolled out in Victoria that will actually assist workers to understand what their obligations are under this new code of conduct. And Dave, I think in part we're hopeful because, of course, NDS had a pivotal role in developing the uh, the aforementioned worker orientation program. That's right, we did. And it's a, it's a wonderful program and uh, and involve people with disability in the making of that as well. So it's a, it's going to be exciting to see the release of that. I must say, having seen the early releases of that of what's been done by the team, I, I can hardly wait to see the reaction of the rest of Australia. I think it's a, I'm biased, of course, but I think it's a fantastic piece of work. Um, Fiona, if I could turn back to you for a second as an allied health professional from way back. Allied health professionals, amongst others, have their own um, professional codes of conduct that they're required to actually comply with as a condition of their registration as an allied health professional. An allied health professional providing disability services under the NDIS, are they also required to be compliant, and I hate using that phrase, merely being compliant with a code of conduct, but are they required to be compliant with the NDIS's code of conduct as well as the one under their own professional association? Yes, they will be. So the the codes of conduct that they will be have to be compliant under will be both their professional code of conduct, but also the NDIS Commission's code of conduct. Okay, that represents an interesting potential issue, I suppose, in some respects. Or does it? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, code of conducts generally, codes of conduct generally. Uh, have the same theme, that really that they're in place to ensure that people act with integrity, that they're acting in the best interests of the people that they serve. So, for instance, within a um, professional allied health code of conduct, uh, in my practice, I've done a lot of work in assistive technology, but I've never worked, for instance, in um, psychosocial disability supports. And as you said, I'm an allied health professional from way back. It would be unethical for me to take on clients at this point in my career that have psychosocial disability support needs. I do have uh, a qualification to do that, but I would be not acting in an ethical way. And the NDIS Code of Conduct is also asking people to take on and deliver supports that they have the skill and capability to do. So you will generally find that code of codes of conduct will align with one another. Okay, watch this space in some respects by the sound of things. So Dave, worker screening. Um, yep. It's the uh, phrase of the moment, particularly if you're in New South Wales or South Australia. Um, what can you tell us about worker screening under the NDIS Quality and Safeguarding Framework? Yeah, so currently Victorian-approved NDIS providers need to screen their workers against the Disability Worker Exclusion Scheme, so DWES, as we all know it as. 
uh, as well as conduct national and international police checks and working with children checks where they're needed. But after the 1st of July, employees and subcontractors of registered providers who have more than incidental contact with people with disability who use their services will need to undergo nationally consistent worker screening. So when we're talking about more than incidental contact, it's a good idea for providers to start thinking about the roles of the people within their organisations. So, for example, the administrative assistant at the front desk of a service provider may not have more than incidental contact with the people with disability that they support. However, a subcontractor who may come in and regularly check someone's mobility equipment may have more than incidental uh, contact with a person with disability and may be required to undergo worker screening under the new national system. National and international police checks will still be required and working with children checks as applicable. And the scheme will be administered locally by the Victorian government despite being nationally consistent. And just because you used what I thought was an excellent example about the difference between the subcontractor or contract on the one hand and the direct employee on the other, in terms of that contractor or subby who is engaged by a third party other than the disability service provider, who has responsibility for ensuring they are appropriately screened as a worker? Which entity is it? Is it the is it the directly employing contractor of that subby, or is it the party to whom they've been contracted to provide the services? My understanding is the party of whom they've been contracted to provide the services, um, and and that's a good idea to have those conversations now about those obligations that those contractors are required to meet. Fiona, complaints management. What can we say about that, mindful of the fact that complaints about registered disability service providers um, are at the moment administered through the Disability Services Commissioner in Victoria? They are about direct disability um, service provision, but also people providing NDIS supports to this point may have had a number of different organisations that they need or regulators that they needed to direct complaints to. So for instance, if someone was providing psychosocial disability supports, it would have been the Mental Health Complaints Commissioner. One of the things that comes into being on the 1st of July is that if it's an NDIS provider, regardless of who of or who they're providing services to or what services they're providing, all complaints will go to the NDIS Commission. So that from 1st of July, the quality and safety of supports um, and complaints can be made to the commissioner. All registered providers are required to have an effective and proportionate internal complaints management resolution arrangements in place. And one, this is a that word proportionate is a word that we're hearing a lot under the NDIS commission. So the commission has is taking into account and has made reference to the fact that the size of organisation, the types of services that people provide will dictate, if you like, the size of the response that is needed. So if I'm providing, I'm a sole trader and I'm providing services to five clients, the complaints management system that I have might be a paper-based system. If I'm a large provider and I have many employees over multiple sites with a thousand participants, then a complaint system that's paper-based is not going to allow me to keep track of those complaints, to analyse themes, to look at what sort of training and other remedial actions that I might need to put in place. So this is where we get wording that's effective and proportionate. So it's proportionate to the size of organisation, but also to the complexity and the risk involved in the supports that I provide. So can I drill down on that a bit? A scenario which is by no means hypothetical, I'm aware of a number of organisations of this size doing these things at the moment, an organisation which has no more than, say, five to ten clients 
who are NDIS participants, but is providing behaviour supports to all of them, high um, to support them in their high intensity and complex needs. What would be the situation there when we're talking about proportionality? So I think where you've identified a support provision that is uh, has been deemed by the Commission to be of higher risk. So at the moment, when we've talked a little bit about registered and unregistered providers throughout the um, podcast, um, people who are providing behaviour support or people who are providing services to people who have restrictive practices in place must be registered providers. People who provide specialist disability accommodation also must be registered providers. But most other supports, uh, providers don't necessarily have to be registered. So the example you've given is one where it has already been identified as the commission as being of higher risk. And then you would imagine that um, complaints management systems need to be effective and proportionate. The fact that there's only five clients might still mean that a paper-based system is effective and proportionate even though the support that's being delivered is of high risk. There are other things that will be imposed on that provider because they are delivering behaviour support. Dave might want to talk a little bit more about. Yeah, sure. So with respect to behaviour support, um, as Fiona mentioned, providers who use or are likely to use restrictive practices or who develop behaviour support plans will need to be registered with the NDIS Commission and meet those supplementary requirements of the NDIS practice standards in relation to behaviour support. So those providers will need to lodge a behaviour support plan with the NDIS Commission if restrictive practices are in place and notify the NDIS Commission of the use of restrictive practices. So reportable restrictive practices will include seclusion, physical restraint, chemical restraint, mechanical restraint and environmental restraints. And that's going to be a change from what we've been used to in Victoria. So currently in Victoria, seclusion, chemical restraint, mechanical restraint and physical restraint are all reported on a monthly basis. However, currently physical restraint and environmental restraints are categorised as other restraints under Victorian legislation. Going forward, all of those restraints that I mentioned, all of those restraints that I mentioned will need to be reported on a monthly basis and that's a change for environmental restraints which previously only had to be in a behaviour support plan but not reported on a monthly basis. All right, Dave, well, because it's new, I wonder if you would mind expanding on that and telling our, our audience what environmental restraints are. Yeah, sure. So environmental restraints can include a number of things but essentially the, anything that imposes a restriction on a person's access to certain things or freedom of movement. So that might be a locked front door at a uh, disability service where the person with disability is unable to leave that service without the door being unlocked or without a key. It might include things like gates on kitchens, locked cupboards, restricted access to their personal belongings, locked fridges. So all of those types of things are considered environmental restraints. And as I said, historically, they've needed to be in a behaviour support plan as outlined by the Office of Senior Practitioner, but they're not reported on on a monthly basis. So going forward, the Commission wants to hear what environmental restraints are in place for each, of, for each of those participants and how the service provider is continuing to reduce those over time. Okay, we'll look out for that. And of course, National Disability Services will be there to provide advice to disability service providers about those changes and their implications for providing quality and safe, quality, high quality and safe services for and with people with disability.
Yes, certainly. I suppose another thing to mention about behaviour support there, David, is that uh, those behaviour support plans after the 1st of July, where they do need to be redeveloped or, or written, need to be written by approved behaviour support practitioners. Now, this is a big change for the Victorian um, system. Previously, we've seen service managers at services and people without specific qualifications being able to write and update behaviour support plans. Any behaviour support plans that are updated after the 1st of July 2019 will need to be done so by those approved behaviour support practitioners and it will be the NDIS Commission that approves those practitioners. Now, they'll do that using a competency framework. We did see a draft competency framework come out, I think it was May last year. That's currently being revised and it's soon to be released. So we are waiting to see what the finer details of that competency framework are and which behaviour support practitioners, which qualifications those behaviour support practitioners and experience they'll need to have before they're deemed competent. Dave, if I could ask you, and I appreciate I'm asking you as a Victorian quality and safeguarding manager, but in terms of what you're hearing from your colleagues in New South Wales and South Australia, who presumably are already subject to the national, well, in fact, we know they're subject to the national quality and safeguarding framework. How are the issues that you've just canvassed being dealt with by those states already within the framework? It is one of the concerns that has been raised, um, particularly in relation to the availability of behaviour support practitioners. So we know there's approximately 800 behaviour support practitioners who have been conditionally approved across the country. And what we're seeing, though, particularly in, in for example, remote communities or um, just given the, the long wait list for behaviour support practitioners, there has been some concerns raised around the availability of behaviour support practitioners, particularly when there's a, a, a sudden change to someone's reportable restrictive practices or um, there's been a, a change of medication, for example, which then needs to be updated in the person's behaviour support plan. So those are the concerns that are being raised and, and they have been raised with the NDIS Commission, so they are looking at that and we're, we're hoping that some of those concerns will be addressed as part of the revised competency framework. What the Office of Senior Practitioner has been advising people at our forums uh, last year has been providing people with information around what they need to consider with regards to a person's NDIS plan. So thinking about if they are going to require behaviour support as part of their plan, if they are going to require someone to perhaps develop an interim behaviour support plan, develop the behaviour support plan itself or support with implementation of that behaviour support plan, we know that there's a wait list. So service providers are encouraged to be having those conversations with people with a disability and their decision makers now so that if they are going to require those supports, they are seeking out approved behaviour support practitioners sooner rather than later. Thanks, Dave. Now, Fiona, in regards to incident management, currently Victorian approved NDIS providers registered or approved by the Department of Health and Human Services are required to report incidents in line with the Client Incident Management Guide. But what about after 1 July when the framework comes in? So it's one of the requirements of the Commission that registered providers have effective incident management systems in place. The Commission isn't prescriptive about what those incident management systems look like, but that there is a need for providers to record and manage all incidents where harm or potential harm is caused to or by a person with disability that's receiving supports and services. To be effective, that incident management system must allow the provider to identify, assess, record, manage, resolve and report incidents. So really looking at a continuous um, quality improvement approach to incidents, recording them but also looking at what can be learnt from them and what can be put in place to respond to them. What the Commission does do is identify what are recordable incidents. So these include 
the death of a participant, serious injury, abuse or neglect of a person with disability and the unauthorised use of restrictive practices. And these incidents must report, be reported to the NDIS Commission. And currently that's by a paper-based system that you can submit through um, email. But the Commission is looking at developing systems that will link with their portal. Okay, and, and I'm right in saying, aren't I, Fiona, that um, these new arrangements don't replace existing obligations to report suspected crimes to the police and other relevant authorities? Absolutely. Mm. So that those obligations are not lessened. There will be reports that you may need to submit to the NDIS Commission, to the police. If it involves a, a child who's receiving services, there will be obligations to report to the Child um, Safe Commissioner as well. Okay. So in terms of getting ready for the, um, the coming of the National Quality and Safeguarding Framework to Victoria and most of the other states and territories in Australia, Dave, what can Victorian service providers do to prepare for the framework? I think in the first instance, jump onto the NDIS Commission website. There's a whole range of fact sheets and relevant information available. There's a wealth of information on there, and that's where the most current and up-to-date information will be placed for service providers uh, to start perusing and getting their heads around. Providers and workers should also begin to familiarise themselves with the NDIS Code of Conduct, which we spoke about before. So start having those conversations with your staff and with subcontractors who we spoke about before who have more than incidental contact with NDIS participants about their obligations. Providers should review their contact details and registration groups on the NDIS provider portal. And if providers are wishing to add registration groups to their registration, they should do so now. Also, if providers are not delivering services that they are registered for and that they do not intend to, to deliver, they should remove those registration groups to ensure it's not included in the scope of their audit against the NDIS practice standards. Okay, and Fiona, what about those providers who are currently um, uh, awaiting state approval for registration groups? What should they do? Should they just basically kick back and wait or should they get on with it in terms of getting that approval? They definitely should not kick back and wait, David. <laughs> <laughs> so providers who have uh, who are pending state approval need to have that pr approval completed before that 1st of July date. So uh, the Victorian um, DHHS are not taking new applications after the 1st of March for registration under the NDIS because they believe that there's inadequate time to complete that registration before that 1st of July date. And any providers who are in, in the middle of registration um, processes, that will be terminated and they will have to start up again on with the Commission on the 1st of July. So it's really important that you don't kick back, <laughs> that you actually have those um, approvals finalised so that there it is a seamless process on the 1st of July that your registration transfers from the NDIA to the Commission. So Fiona, for those providers who um, are waiting around and aren't taking action now, in circumstances where their approval is not finalised by, say, the 2nd of March, the process would stop and then would have to restart after the 1st of July. If they've started the process, David, that's fine. Right. But they can't commence the process after the 1st of March. Okay. So, Dave, you've um, fast confirmed your uh, reputation as an expert on um, behaviour support processes um, uh, through this podcast. So I'll turn to you now and ask, in regards to behaviour support, what's the story there in terms of how Victorian service providers can prepare for the coming of the framework? Yeah, well, so I'll reiterate what we spoke about before with regards to those environmental restraints. I think it's a good idea for service providers to have a think about each of the services and supports they provide to people who are currently 
receiving supports and may have a behaviour support plan or not. But think about those services and whether there are environmental restraints in place. Do a bit of a, a stock take or an audit, I would say, of those services and have a think about what locks or restrictions are currently in place at that service and then check to see that those restrictions are currently in that person's behaviour support plan. And if they're not, put them in now and start thinking about ways in which you can reduce those and checking to see if they are the least restrictive alternative available. A really good way to have a think about restrictive practices is to access the NDS Zero Tolerance Recognising Restrictive Practice films. They're a great way to open a conversation about the use of restrictive practices with staff uh, and a good way to start thinking about how you might reduce those um, by facilitating conversations within your staff meetings. I'd also look at ensuring that there's adequate funding in a person's NDIS plan for interim behaviour support, development of a behaviour support plan, reviewing behaviour support plans, required training for the staff team, and for implementing the strategies within those behaviour support plans. So that's a conversation with the NDIS planner, which uh, should happen sooner rather than later to ensure there's appropriate funding in that person's plan. Be aware that there currently is a wait list for behaviour support practitioners in Victoria and across the country. So support participants and their decision makers to make inquiries sooner rather than later if they will require a practitioner to write a plan so that they can be placed on one of those wait lists. I'd also suggest having a look at all of the Zero Tolerance resources on the NDS website. The Zero Tolerance framework assists service providers to understand, implement and improve practices which safeguard the rights of people uh, who, who they support. And another fantastic resource on the NDS website is the help desk. So if providers have any questions about the NDIS or specifically about the NDIS quality and safeguarding framework, I'd suggest they jump on and ask those questions via the NDS help desk and they will receive a response. And just on that point, and I think I need to emphasise this for the sake of transparency, the National NDS Help Desk will be a member-only benefit from 1 July 2019. So it's important to emphasise that. If you're not an NDS member or organisational associate, you won't get the benefit of that tremendous resource. That's right. Okay, so Fiona, how can we ensure that people with a disability who use services are supported to understand the changes occurring under the framework? It's important that all providers continue to provide information and consult with the people that they support about the quality and, and safety of the services that they provide. There will be a change to complaints processes, so it's important to let um, people with disability know about that, to know about the details in the Code of Conduct. NDS will be running th forums throughout Victoria in the next three to four months um, that will be inclusive of people with disability the Commission's website has uh, accessible resources that can be used to assist people with disability to understand the complaints processes and also the requirements under the Code of Conduct. It's really important that organisations involve people with disability in meetings and decision-making processes about the implementation of these quality and safeguard and on that point, if I, if I could just um, put a shout out to um, boards and senior leadership teams, perhaps ask yourself the question, how are you engaging people with disability in developing these processes, in, in, in supporting your organisation and through you themselves to understand the implications of the framework? Unfortunately, it's a fair question for many providers that we're aware of who um, are doing a lot of good work, but sometimes that good work is being done absent input from people with disability. So where can people find out more information? I mean, Fiona's already started us off on 
on, on the path towards understanding where that information might come from. But, but Dave, you've got some further information for us? Yeah, so we mentioned before the NDIS Commission website is a wealth of information. There's so much resources and so much information and fact sheets on there. I really encourage people to jump on and have a look. There's also accessible information on there for people with disabilities. So have a look what's on there. Further information about Victoria's quality and safeguard arrangements during the transition can be found on the Victorian government's NDIS website. More information about pending state approval is available on the NDIS website. Providers can contact the Department of Human Services Standards and Regulations team if they have any questions about their their audit processes um, before the 1st of July. The NDS website, National Disability Services website, is a, a wealth of information as well, particularly with respect to all of the resources available via the Zero Tolerance Framework, as well as we mentioned before, the NDS Help Desk and lots of other information on the NDS website that will assist providers to transition to the new framework. Okay, unless it needs to be said, we'll be uploading um, this information for your reading pleasure as part of the show notes for this podcast as well. So you'll have phone numbers, web links, email addresses, and other sources of information that you can go to to better understand your obligations and responsibilities under the National Quality and Safeguarding Framework. So that brings us to the end of our podcast today about the National Quality and Safeguarding Framework. I want to thank Dave Relf and Fiona Still from National Disability Services for coming in and sharing with us a wealth of knowledge that you've collected over the journey about these important issues. If you want more information other than that which you've heard today, go to our show notes or go to www.nds.org.au. See you next time. Do you have a question about the NDIS, quality and safeguarding or disability employment? The NDS Help Desk has the answers. As a member of NDS, you have unlimited access to the Help Desk where you can get answers to your specific questions. You're also able to tap into the expertise available at the Knowledge Hub with our extensive database of answers to the most commonly asked questions. Don't wait to find the answers you need. They are readily available at nds.org.au forward slash helpdesk. If you are not a member, head to the NDS website and click on Become a Member to sign up now. Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package. 